Uh, hey, this is Ross Bain with Rogue Lambo Radio. I'm here interviewing Jim McClure, uh, who is a podcast, another RPG podcaster and a game designer who has uh, recently launched a Kickstarter for Satanic Panic, a tabletop RPG about fighting, well, the greatest threat to known to mankind, tabletop role-playing games, uh, <laughs> based on, of course, the Satanic Panic of the 1980s, uh, mazes and monsters and all that fun stuff. Uh, so, Jim, tell us a little bit about your game. Hey Ross, hey, and and thank you so much for having me on the show. I'm a well, long time listener, first time caller, right? <laughs> um, I'm sure that joke's never been made, but uh, no, uh, Satanic Panic. Yeah, this is a a new tabletop role playing games I just launched on Kickstarter. Well, two days ago, as of recording this thing, anyway. Um, and the uh, the concept, well, you said it. It is a game set in a satirical version of the late '70s, early '80s during the Satanic Panic era, where everyone was was whispering in hushed tones about this. New new thing called tabletop and what what they, they they said that it was turning people into monsters and summoning demons and causing all sorts of chaos and and the concept of the game is everything they said is true tabletop is actually bringing dynamic forces into the world it's actually turning people into monsters and you play secret government agents tasked with breaking up rings of tabletop players so that's uh that's sort of satanic panic in a nutshell okay uh, where did, I mean, obviously the idea, uh, or at least of the, you know, Satanic Panic has been kind of background noise for the whole role-playing game, uh, community for, you know, obviously decades now, but, uh, where did the idea come from to actually make a game that says, what if Jack Chick was actually right? You know, what if you <laughs> could cast mind bondage spells? Uh, I, I, I have a horrible story about Jack Chick too, that I guess I'm going to have to tell. Um, but, uh, the, the basic idea, um, you know, it's kind of one of those that's hard to, to pinpoint. It's, uh, well, I mean, Ross, you're, you're a creative person, you know, when you sort of have those, those spouts of inspiration when you're just, you know, whatever, going on a walk or in the middle of a game or watching a movie and something else and you're just like hey that would be cool um and that's kind of literally what happened with this it was the idea of well wait a second we're, we're talking about the satanic panic it's you know it's um what was it a couple years ago i think it was at gen con was it dark dungeons i think is the name of the movie um that was was produced i thought that was fun so it's kind of sitting in the back of my mind and i was like that would be kind of a fun game to play to you know flip it on on its head uh and go go the other route and then that kind of been sitting in the back of my mind until stranger things came out actually um and i watched that and i was like wait because I'm, I always play the villain apparently in every game that I'm in. I'm like, I want to play the government agents in this. And let's say like they actually summon that monster, and we're the government agents going around to trying to break up these these rings of table toppers. So that was kind of the the genesis. It was kind of one of those like a a collection of of inspirations that finally clicks and goes, hey, this would actually probably be a cool thing, and I probably wouldn't be the only one interested in playing it. Okay. Uh, yeah, actually, Dark Dungeons, uh, the the film uh, that you're referring to, was from produced by Zombie Orpheus Entertainment, and that was actually I remember because I backed they had a Kickstarter for that as well, and they actually based it on the Jack Chick track. Yes, uh, and they uh, had permission uh, from Jack Chick, uh, so they they made it very very sincere. You're, you're very very they played it straight. They didn't <laughs> wink. Uh, and that's available now on YouTube. Uh, I'm, I think, uh, and it's, 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 it's it like is 40 minutes long. So yeah. And it's wonderful. It is, it is so good. I, I'm smiling ear to ear every time I watched it. Cause of course I had to do the, all, all the due diligent research into everything that was going on, but, uh, uh, it's such a good film. So, um, you know, Caleb, uh, at RPPR, he actually backed the Kickstarter when he realized for satanic panic, 
when he realized it was not an apocalypse world hack, but an original <laughs> system, um, because that's kind of the trend now these days. So uh, Satanic Panic uses its own uh, unique system. So can you tell us a little bit about that? Yeah, absolutely. Um, I have just to to start off. I have uh, the designer in me. I kind of have to work with my own my own clay, so to speak. Um, I, I'm actually, I guess, a little bit envious of, of designers that can take someone else's system and have a, a redesign and a re retooling of it and make something their own. I, I'm one of those. I'm like, I gotta I gotta have my own thing, and I've gotta gotta build it up from scratch. So uh, with a couple previous games I did prior to this, uh, Reflections, a game of Dueling Samurai, and some of the others, I, I did the same thing of, of I always design my own system, but uh, the the system for Satanic Panic is is kind of an interesting one. Um, I, I like to describe the the core mechanic, uh, but you gotta you gotta saddle in for this one, okay? Because it's it's not it's not D and D where it's just roll a d twenty, add a modifier, and that is the core to the system. Uh, we we have what what I call a a four spoke core mechanic here. All right, so so Ross, you ready to follow me along on this thing? Sure, sure. All right. So picture this. You got a circle. You got four spokes. We're going to start up at the north spoke. And that is you are going to roll damage to or I'm sorry, I apologize. You're going to roll dice to deal damage to the thing in front of you to eliminate the thing in front of you. Okay, pretty simple and straightforward. But a core concept of the game is just like when we watch uh, any of these shows where sort of you have the secret government agents, they're actually really strong and really powerful. So this game is designed so that about 80% of the time, you as the players are more powerful than what you're fighting. But there are aspects that are put into the game that make you have to self-control your own actions. So starting with this north spoke, roll dice to deal damage to remove the things in front of you, um, you have essentially the option within the weapons that you're using of how many dice you can roll. And you can go pretty crazy with it and totally destroy everything. But what keeps that in check is we follow our way over to our, our right spoke. Okay, Our second spoke is we, we go clockwise around this wheel, and that is collateral damage. So if you roll too high... You still deal all that damage, but you also deal collateral damage. And collateral damage is what we want to avoid because everything we're trying to do is to operate in secret. We're trying to remove tabletop from the world without the public being aware of what we're doing. Mm-hmm. lest a panic ensue. So uh, our, our right spoke there is collateral damage. Then our, our bottom spoke is our team budget. So the collateral damage that we get on a mission, if it's too high, our budget is decreased. If it's too low, or not too low, if we want it to be as low as possible, the lower it is, if it's below the sort of the benchmark number, your budget increases. And your team has one giant budget as a whole, and really the way that you improve and you level up through campaign-style play is you increase your budget. So our bottom spoke is our budget, and then that takes us over to to our left spoke, our fourth spoke, which is requisition gear. We use our budget to requisition our gear. So that is our guns, our bulletproof vests, our all of our stuff that we need for investigation, our vans, whatever it is that you can imagine that you need for a mission, you go in requisition. And you use that gear to do what? Our top spoke. Roll dice to deal damage to eliminate what's in front of you. So what we have is our core mechanic is sort of this long feedback loop of you you roll dice to deal damage, but you have to keep yourself in check or else you'll deal collateral damage. Collateral damage affects your budget. Your budget's what allows you to requisition gear, and your gear is what makes you effective at rolling dice to deal damage. So that is the the core central mechanic of Satanic Panic. 
Interesting. So, uh, does this make, uh, I would assume this mechanic applies to more than just literally dealing damage. Uh, like, I mean, would it, uh, also apply to, like, say, you know, persuading someone that they saw nothing or something like that? Or, Absolutely. Okay. Yeah. Uh, uh I- I, I was just gonna, gonna gonna touch on one one other thing on that because together with our little our little circle here, uh, there's another underlying track, mm-hmm. and that is our our local panic level, mm-hmm. which is when you go and do these operations, what you're trying to do is you're trying to again act as as secretly as possible, get rid of the threat, clean up after yourself, get out of there. Hopefully, no one's aware of your presence. Uh, so throughout your actions that can go poorly that aren't collateral damage, you can increase that panic level, which is the community getting more and more concerned about what's going on in their community. Um, and that, that sort of ties into how the investigation side of the game flows uh, and, and into what you said of, you know, it's not just rolling damage. I say that to be simple, but there's also a wonderful little interrogation mechanic that if you end up with too high of a dice and you get above that that threshold, it causes problems. And it's pretty much tied into to all of that. Okay. Um, interesting. So how long, how long did it take you to develop this system? Um, the system has been in development. Um, I'll, 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 I'll preface this with this. I am, I am a, a workaholic, uh, and I, I'm sort of one of these people that always has to be doing something. Mm-hmm. So I did a, my first Kickstarter I did for Reflections, which I mentioned earlier, uh, was back in the, uh, fall of last year. I ran, uh, ran over top of Gen Con, which I don't think is a decision I would make again, but, uh, uh, it, it ran. So what was that? I think. September to August, uh, something in that nature. Anyway, um, so about a month after the Reflections Kickstarter was done, I had everything on my development end done. So I was like, I need to start the next thing. So I jumped into the full-on design of Satanic Panic. So we've been sort of in full design and full play test for about, what's that, seven seven months, something in that that time frame. Uh, and then we've got a, a three-month sort of public play test built into it after this Kickstarter to go, okay, we, we think we've gotten this to where it works well we want you all to take it and start running it and you know finding any cracks that we didn't catch so that way we can you know of course redesign and accumulate all that before we do our our print run and ship out books to everyone okay um so the game is still in development right now and people who back it would you know have some input into it Oh, absolutely. Yep. Um, And anyone that backs it, we do have a, I'm going to say a fairly comprehensive playtest document that you get immediately from backing. It's 70 pages long. um, And the the finished book is going to be, it's 70 small pages, not full RPG text pages. Uh, Finished book will be a 200 page hardcover. So the the playtest document is fairly extensive. And like I said, we're pretty sure we're we're 90, 95% on on target for the system. But, uh, you know, like, like anyone will tell you, once you once you get it out in front of a couple hundred people, you're you're going to find the stuff that you missed. Right. There's always that tweaking and uh, getting feedback on you know I don't you know if everyone else says I, I interpreted this rule to mean this and you meant you know meant mean something entirely different. Well, you know something's got to change and exactly it's easier to change your your, your text rather than change hundreds of people's minds. Um, <laughs> so um, it's not, are there any plans to do anything with a system like, uh, say, make a Creative Commons or Open Game License with that or develop any uh, other games with it? Because it sounds like a, a mechanic that could apply to a lot of different uh, settings and genres. Um, 
again, we're, we're going to get into more weird quirks about Jim McClure here. Okay. okay. Um, <laughs> and I kind of hinted and alluded about this earlier. Oh, uh, I, I gotta, I gotta have fresh clay when I make something. Um, so will I do another game with this system? Probably not. Um, would I open it up to an open gaming license? Possibly if there was interest in it. Um, it's very heavily tied to the setting. Uh, and then when I inevitably start the, the next project after this, which is pretty much already picked out, I've got a game called Reach of Titan that's been in development for a little while, which is about fighting like giant, giant creatures. It's, it's Shadow of Colossus, the game. Um, is uh you know like obviously this system doesn't work for that the reflections the the two player rpg of dueling samurai doesn't work for that so it's it's its own little system that it gets um so as far as whether i will take it in any other directions uh there's always a possibility never say never and all that but i'll say i don't particularly have plans i think if there's enough people interested in the game we're going to do some some supplemental stuff some people have expressed interest that they're like hey love the game i would love to play table toppers that are running around spreading evil in the world uh, um, in the same setting, I'm like, oh, we could, we could, we could do mechanics to make that work too. So there might be a couple other supplemental things like that that come about. Okay. Um, yeah, because again, like the, the 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 sort of framing device of troubleshooters, you know, from an agency going out to to deal with some sort of secret problem that they can't, you know, the public can't know about, is kind of a is is sort of applicable to a lot of different uh, uh, campaign ideas, not just right. dealing with the. Um, the evil tabletoppers. So what, what are the powers of the evil tabletoppers in the game? Uh, like <laughs> what, what kind of threats are the players facing? Well, uh, so we, we've got a few different things. Okay. Uh, there, there is our, our basic standard level table topper. Okay. Mm-hmm. And, and that, that is the, the person that has discovered tabletop. They have rolled one of the, the cursed 20 sided artifacts because it is, it is a known fact that we do not have the technology to produce a 20 sided dice. Those can only come from the other side. Um, <laughs> So uh, they, they've rolled one and they've turned into a, a horrible monster. They still look like a normal person. They they, they they still look like your neighbor Tom, but but he's now a horrible horrible monster. Trust me. Um, so he needs to be eliminated. And that is the the table toppers aren't a extreme threat to you. They they are you know if you're going into a basement with an M16 and and they have a broken off chair leg, yeah, we have a a little bit of a difference in power level here. Right. Um, but they they then become more and more powerful the more and more they get involved with it. Uh, and at some point, they, they level up, and then they become game masters. And game masters, oh, let me tell you about these horrible things. Okay. Uh, g- game masters are, are frightening creatures because they have started interacting with these demonic forces enough that they can start to bend them at their own will, and they will open up their, their playbooks and actually read spells out of them and cast them at you. Uh, so they're, they're a much, much bigger threat as well. Um, but they're still, still tip of the iceberg of some of the stuff because then once we start actually bringing true demons from the other side, then we have big concerns on our hand. And we've got lesser demons and greater demons, and they come in all, all different shapes and sizes and once there's a demon then we have big big trouble there's actually a uh, a funny little or I should say funny a fun little uh, exorcism mini game for the exorcist class where you get to do an 80 style exorcism uh, with, with the party and, and the, the the power of Christ and all of that uh, to, uh, to, to to get them out um, and then if you get them out successfully you get to banish them and not so successfully then they come ripping into your world very very unhappy um, so demons are a concern but then then there's one other bigger concern. I mean, as much as it is that we, we need to get rid of table toppers, and as much as a concern is, as demons in our world are, uh, there's there's another organization out there. Uh, we don't know much about them. They're called the TSR. 
<laughs> and there are TSR agents that go around, and they are the ones that are indoctrinating people into tabletop. They're the ones and, printing the books. Uh, theoretically, um, we, we don't know that much about it. And in the setting, it, it's kept very vague. So that way you can kind of craft it how you want okay. in your campaign. Uh, we don't really know what their motivations are. We don't know, uh, how, but they are the ones spreading tabletop. Um, but TSR agents are exceedingly powerful. They are, they are treated like, like agents in the matrix. Okay. If you're out on a mission and you run into a TSR agent, the standard operating procedure is get out of that mission, mission abort, run away way get gone something horrible has happened never engage with a tsr agent now of course as you get stronger of course you'll you will ultimately be able to engage with these these horrifying monstrosities but uh uh yeah those, those are some of the wonderful wonderful fun things that you'll encounter in in uh, satanic panic uh so do the uh the player characters have any special uh equipment or uh assets that they can use i mean you talk about requisitioning things for the budget aside from machine guns and you know bibles uh do they have any- <laughs> Unusual gadgets or uh, supernatural weapons to aid their uh, struggle. You know, it's it, it, it's it's terrible. I have not put a blessed Bible into the inventory. I really should. <laughs> that absolutely should be in there. But uh, no, uh, actually, one of one of the interesting decisions that uh, design decisions that I made on the game is um, we actually do not have any supernatural men in black style gear to it now uh again i I mentioned supplements i think we're going to release one of those in case people want to bring that into the game Mm -hmm. um but what we really like and what we really find interesting is sort of the feel of, you know, you're a true government agent that just has spy type gear. And all of the magic and creepiness happens on on the, the other side of the, the table, so to speak, of it's the demons, it's the TSR agents, it's the magic spells that tabletops are uh, tabletoppers are casting. Um that's where where all the magic and bad things are are really happening. Um so currently in the playtest uh, in the playtest document and the book as design, uh, I don't think we're going to have any any men in black mind erasers or uh, or, or demon catching backpacks or anything like that. But uh, we, we, we it, it may be true that the designers have a have a list of this stuff ready to go out for their own personal use and for uh, for maybe if uh, if people are interested in that as an expansion. Okay. Uh, so have you been getting any sort of feedback yet from uh, some of the players on you know? Uh, whether they want that kind of gear or uh, any other notes you've been getting from the game so far? You know, I, I've got a a mixed bag. It's really interesting because, uh, as I mentioned before, I'm, I'm a workaholic, so I, I took this thing to, to every convention I could over the last couple months and have tried to play test it with as many people as possible. I took it to Metatopia. I took it to a Catacon. Um, I took it to a smaller one up in Chicago and and ran this for a good number of, of tables. Um, and play testing and feedback is a really interesting thing. I'll, I'll give you an example, okay? Uh, Metatopia. Uh, this was the first uh, public play test of the game. And I ran three games there, and I'd convinced myself before. I'd go, you know what I'm going to do? I'm going to run this game exactly the same way all three times. Even if I get obvious feedback that I should change something, let me just run it the exact same way just to compare. Okay. So I run it for the first table. And we go through, have a wonderful good time. Everyone's laughing. It's great. Uh, this, the game sort of ends with – we do an exorcism, okay, mm-hmm. uh, which they, they succeeded in. They succeeded in the exorcism. And then I'm getting feedback after it's all said and done. And they go, 
we really love the interrogation mechanic. We really love the core mechanic. Exorcism fall, fall, fell flat. We don't really care for that. It needs reworking. It was too deterministic. And I immediately when I go, I see 100% exactly what they're saying. I go, okay, I, I know I'll work on that. I go, next two play sessions, I'm still going to run it the same, but that's obvious. I should have seen that before. So I go to the next table, and I run it for them. And so I get run the whole same situation for him. They do the exorcism. Uh, when I ask for feedback, the first thing they say is, above all else, we love the exorcism mechanic. <laughs> love it. Don't touch it. And I'm like, well, now what am I going to do? I literally have some people going, I totally hate it. And the next group going, we totally love it. And I go, uh, so the long and short of that is I did end up uh, re, re actually retooling the exorcism mechanic, and I'm far, far happier with, with the way it turned out. But um, uh, to the to the question that you asked on the gear side of it, uh, well, I kind of got a mixed response, a similar thing of some people going, you know, hey, it would be super cool to have all the, the high-tech gadgets, and some going, hey, I really like the fact that, you know, magic is sort of their purview, um, and that's the, that's the thing that they can one-up us with. Um, and if they really want to, uh, there is actually a class you can play where you are a reformed tabletopper that has been weaponized um, at the, that the party doesn't trust. So if you want to dip your in it a little bit you can uh, on, on that side of it so that's that's kind of why we made the decision of you know what we're going to keep it just period level gear uh, and then we will you know if, if there's interest we will do an expansion where we'll put the the other stuff in if people want to play with that too okay um, I mean yeah the, the, one problem with feedback is obviously you know every player has their own preferences uh, but one thing is the players don't have the game designer's vision for what they think the game should be. And sometimes it's hard to tell whether a, a feedback is based on, you know, some flaw in the game where the designer is not achieving the vision they want or whether the player genuinely wants something different than what the game the designer wants to make. And and that that that, that can be hard to distinguish between uh, the two. I mean, what do you think, uh, how do you distinguish between the, the types of feedback? You know, uh, when when... Uh, do you say, oh, that's good feedback or that's not good feedback or that's valid feedback, but I'm not trying to make that kind of game? Because uh, it sounds like the kind of games you want to make are very much, uh, I don't want to say narrative focus per se, but they're very, like, in terms of designing role-playing games, you can either make a game for this type of setting or this kind of thing, or you can make a game about a particular type of story, uh, a very sort of narrowed and focused game. That's kind of a more recent trend in game design. Um you know, as opposed to like the 1980s universal role playing game, you know, uh, trend. <laughs> um, so, yeah, so where do you fall on that uh, in terms of like uh, feedback and sticking to your vision? Uh, you know, it's it's a really interesting question. Um, my my default answer is that this whole thing would be much easier if just everyone in the world was me, and that way they all work the same way my brain worked. It'd be a lot easier to to to, to develop to those people, but obviously that's not the case. And anytime you're designing a, a role playing game, to some degree you're designing it for a wide audience. Now, you know, I I'm, Satanic Panic is not going to be the next Dungeons and Dragons. It essentially by default can't be, but it's going to get played by you know at this point already several hundred people hopefully several thousand people uh so it needs to it, it needs to capture a 
design sensibility uh, and a feel and a mechanics and a gameplay um, that will engage a wide variety of interests. So when when I'm getting feedback, um, there's a couple things I look at. Uh, to start with, I go into with exactly what you said, Ross. I go into it with a a design mentality. And and for this particular game, I, I go. I know exactly what design mentality I want to be. I want it to have wonderful satirical fun. So that's going to be a lot of a lot of setting focus uh, and tongue in cheek stuff written into in, into the text and the rules and how the game's played. Um, so I'm going to want to have that. I'm going to want to capture that whimsy. Uh, for that reason, I want a. I hate using the term medium crunch. Oh, I'm going to use it, but I, I I will put a caveat to my own statement of I hate that that phrase. But uh, you know, it, it's not a you know, it's not a story game uh, like a lot of indie games are. Like like that I've designed, I love story games, uh, but this isn't that. Uh, this is definitely more of a a mechanical resource management game at its core. Um, but we want to marry that into this concept of of playing this game. So I, I know I need to keep those things in check. Uh, if if I want it to be lighthearted and fun. I need my players winning a lot. Um, that that is to me a key part of it. If you're doing challenge and losing a lot, that is can still be a very rewarding experience. I mean, heaven knows how many people play Dark Souls. You can absolutely lose ninety percent of the time and still apparently have fun playing a game. Um, but you know, you, you can you can still have an experience with that. But so I wanted I wanted the characters to be to be very powerful in the world. Um, you know, and essentially their own choices is what would cause their their failures. Um, so I know I want that to to reinforce the um, the satirical nature of it and i knew that i wanted i wanted a little bit of of horror to it i wanted a little bit of that when we when we walk down the steps to a basement and all the lights are out and in the far back of the room there's one overhead light and there's four people sitting and one person with a giant beard all the way to the floor standing at the back of the table I want you to I want you to grip your chair just a little bit. I want you to hold the dice a little bit tighter just so there's that a little bit of suspense of we don't really know what we're walking into because um, that plays very well back and forth between having the fun sort of lighthearted ha 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 we are we you know we're we're dealing with tabletop people and oh wait the, the neighbors are having secret parties every Friday night they must be investigated uh, you know you have that wonderful type fun with that of ooh what what what's actually down there what what could could be around the corner. So I know that I want those things going into it, and I'm trying to design a game that achieves those things. So when I play test and then I get feedback from people, um, what I'm looking for is um, – is, is, is really what they're feeling and what they're experiencing from the game. Um, you know, when, when we talk about, uh, uh, I, I think it was Stephen King who said this uh, in Odd Writing uh, about getting feedback for novel writing. He said, you know, when I when I show my book to somebody, I want them to know what, what they feel and what the, when they felt and when they didn't feel. Uh, what I don't want to know from them is how to fix that. That's that's my job as an author. Uh, I go into, into the game design with a very similar sensibility of I want to know, okay, you did didn't like the exorcism mechanic. Why didn't you like the exorcism mechanic? And then, you know, hopefully I'll, I'll get good feedback. Like the first group, they told me it felt too deterministic. We were we were narrowing it down to one number, and we pretty much knew we were either going to get there or we weren't going to get there, and that felt too deterministic. And I went, that makes total and complete sense to me. That is the why. Now I can rework this mechanic for what I want to accomplish with it while knowing that deterministic is pe something that people are not enjoying with the experience. Now, if I get someone that goes, Nah, I didn't really like the uh, um, 
the the mechanic there. Uh, I would rather you do two D10 instead of a D20 because it's got a better bell curve or it has a bell curve to it. Um, then I go. Appreciate the feedback, and I write it down as a note, and that sort of goes in the back of my mind somewhere, um, because ultimately what I'm really trying to do is design a game that allows other people to curate an experience and to give them tools to do that. Um, does does the D20, or whether it has a bell curve in 2D10, make a difference in this? Maybe it does, maybe it doesn't, but I'm not really interested in that. I'll, I'll figure out through playtesting and through design what needs to be done to accomplish that. What I want to know is, how did you feel? Did you feel tense? Did you feel excited? Did you feel there was a build-up to the finale? Yes or no? Um, and with that, I can take the information and then try to rework the mechanics to make it happen. So my big thing when I'm getting getting playtest feedback from someone is I take everything that they say to heart um, and I try and divide it into two categories, which is what they felt and what they experienced during the game and what was specific advice that they gave back, which may or may not be useful to me. Okay. Um, that's uh, – so it sounds like you, you, you've got a very pretty like – thorough uh philosophy of game design in terms of like what you want to do as a, what you want to accomplish and how you want to accomplish it as a game designer how much of that did that, that come from experience from designing your previous games you already mentioned reflections uh and i know before we started recording you mentioned a few others um like what what what, what kind of hard earned lessons have you uh, <laughs> uh gained from uh, your <clears throat> game design experience um well, it, it's it's an interesting thing. I, I can't say that I have any any specific hard learned failures from that. I uh, a lot of that comes from from the other side of Jim McClure, the the corporate side. I'm uh, I'm a business consultant for a Fortune 100 company. That's the the thing that pays the bills during the you know during the the other 40 hours of the week where I'm not actually having fun and doing my my fun job at night, which is okay. game design. Um and and there's a lot of concepts, of course, that that come from the business world into into what I do. Um and and one of those is people respond very well to a a hyper focused thing. So let me let me give you an example uh, from uh, again the first game that I kickstarted Reflections. So Reflections is uh, it's called Reflections: The Game of Dueling Samurai, and the concept is is pretty simple. It is a two player RPG only. Uh, you play the game in about an hour. Uh, it is the story of two samurai that are going to have a duel to the death. The game starts with both of you all face to face, about to have your final duel and try and kill each other. But before you get there, you flash back in time and you play through the events of your lives as you turn from good friends to bitter enemies, and then you will ultimately have this final duel to resolve it. Mm -hmm. That is a very specific game. Yeah, it is. But I'm going to tell you, I'm actually selling it to you as a very specific game and a very specific experience. The reality of the mechanics of that game is it works for any situation where you have people that are going to come to a distinctive conclusion in a story. Which is so super vague, uh, but we've got people that are, are writing, you know, versions of this that is a, it's a court case. Okay. Mm -hmm. We have gunslingers. We have one of my favorite ones that came up is it is a teacher and student, uh, doing their driving test at 16 and okay. they're, they're going to do it. So anything where there's sort of a, a decisive inclusion at the end, the mechanics work for what I actually built was a, a dueling system, quote unquote. And what I slapped was a, a samurai veneer on top of it, uh, because of course the, the people that that know me know I'm a, a big fan of Legend of Five Rings, and I, I, I tout that it is the greatest game ever made by mankind. Uh, but um, 
you know, so why I do the very specific focus is because uh, I, I feel it's more of a reality of where we are in 2017. Uh, you know, I, I want to do game design and game production uh, for a living. That's that's really it's been my passion. I've been designing games since I was 10 years old. That's 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 my passion. It's what I want to do. Um, and in the reality of, of 2017 is, uh, you know, uh, GURPS already exists. Uh, Fate already exists. Powered by Apocalypse already already exists um if you want to make a generic system you are really gonna have to sell people on why your generic system because there's so many others already out there if you want to get in a more specific system if you want to do fantasy well man are, are, are you what, what do you got to offer that that dnd one through five doesn't or pathfinder doesn't have you know what what do you bring to the table uh that you can outshine them you want to go into the space side of it you know you, you've got travel it's been around forever you've got fantasy flight you know the the star wars game which is a magnificent game i'm a big fan of that game um you know, you have all of these things. It's, you know, how are you going to, to carve a little niche and make people interested in what you're doing? And, and the way to do that, in my opinion, is you give them a specific experience. Okay. If, if you were going to back uh, and buy the game book reflections, the game of dueling samurai, you pretty much know exactly what experience you are getting from that one sentence. If I tell you you are going to back Duelatron, the game that allows you two people to duel, do you know what experience that you're getting from that? Mm, not nearly as much. Same thing as we go into Satanic Panic. Uh, you know, I, I really like these, and Satanic Panic isn't quite as hyper-focused as that, but I, I do really like these games that it is a specific gameplay experience. You know, you, you're not going to take, you know, uh, Satanic Panic and, and you're not going to take the system and run, you know, Dungeons and Dragons with it. You know, you're not going to do a dungeon crawl with it, although it does have a weird take on dungeon crawls, so I guess that's kind of misleading. Um, but, uh, you know, you're, you're not going to run a space opera with it. That's, that's not what the game is for. It's not what it's designed for. And I I think having the the very specific hyper-focused design sensibilities of I'm going to sell you a game that does this thing. Are you interested? Are you going to come on board with me and, and back a game that does this thing? And so far in my limited experience now being a, a second Kickstarter, people have responded well to it. Um, yeah, I, I, I see your point about like a, a, a hyper focus. I don't necessarily think it's now, sometimes, uh, the focus isn't necessarily on the, the setting or the story. Uh, although that, that's a common pitch, you know, dueling samurai, um, or just have to look at my bookshelf, you know, in the belly of the beast, you know, being right. inside a giant belly or satanic panic. Uh, sometimes I actually, can't, I actually played uh belly of the beast. That's a super good game. I do really like that. Yeah, I really enjoyed it. I, it's on my bookshelf. It's on my list of games to play, and I it is a very long list, unfortunately. Um, but it's a good problem to have. But um, sometimes it can be uh, a universal system. But with like the the counterexample I would have off the top of my head would be Hill Folk, uh, because that is kind of a universal system in that you can run any setting for it, but it's for a specific kind of game, you know, uh, interpersonal drama as opposed to procedural, which is what most RPGs are. And um, so I think the games ha do have to have a focus. You can't be, if you're at trying to be everyone for every game, uh, every, you know, you're, you're trying to be the universal system, you'll be the system for no one. But if you're the game, if you want to be uh, the game about the, the satanic panic, the, you know, you should get satanic panic. But if you want a game about, you know, drama, you know, sort of thematically connected to like hour long shows on HBO or whatever, 
uh, use hill folk because that's that's the system for that. Um, but yeah, I think I think uh, you, you do see a lot of people out here who are still like, oh, I'm going to make D and D but better, you know, and <laughs> it's just you, not going to work, you know. You, you got to be Monty Cook to do that. Yeah. Um, the because uh, uh, Numenera, as much as I actually really really enjoy it, I go it, it's a fantasy heartbreaker that worked, um, which is good on him, and I I'm a I'm a fan of Numenera too, but I I did really want to want to actually second that point that you just made on that of uh, you're absolutely right, a, a game has to have uh, a thing for lack of a better term, a, a hook if you want to, yeah. um, like you said with, with Hillfolk, I mean most generic systems out there. Um, generally speaking, tend to be based around a maybe a simulationist style play um, or a very m- mechanic, uh, you know, combat style, style play. Of uh, play. Yeah. Exactly. Um, you know, where the Hill Folk's grab is the fact that it is a different style of play that isn't often grabbed. Uh, to use another example, um, there's a phenomenal game. Uh, Mark Richardson, who's a Canadian designer, he, uh, he produced a game called Headspace uh, about two years ago now. Uh, it's a cyberpunk game. And um, not not to to disparage it in any way, um, you know, but it, it it's pretty standard cyberpunk fare. But it, it's hook, and it's the reason I love the game so much is uh, all of the stats in it are replaced with emotions. It's hate, it's rage, it's anger, um, it, it's despair, it's fear, uh, it's envy. Everything is based around those. So it's a cyberpunk game that is uh, essentially 100% about the emotions of people that are linked together. And that's that's the hook. That's what makes me want to play it. That's what makes me go, oh, it's not just standard cyberpunk, which there's nothing wrong with that. But there's a lot of standard cyberpunk around. What's what's the thing that's going to grab me? Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, exactly. You, you need something uh, to stand out from the crowd. Uh, and especially in the age of Kickstarter, it's about that hook. You know, what is your one sentence tagline that's going to grab people? Because they won't even watch the video now. Uh, a lot of the times. Uh, yep. <laughs> so it, it, it's um, so yeah. Uh, speaking of Kickstarter, like how ha- have you changed? Have you learned anything about running Kickstarters recently? Especially since you ran one late last year and now one right now. Uh, yeah, kick, Kickstarter's a, a in- interesting monster. Um, <laughs> yeah. the, the first Kickstarter, uh, again, for reflections, um, honest to goodness went, uh, went fairly smoothly. I had a, uh, a very aggressive schedule in that I had promised fulfillment of the books within five months of the finish of Kickstarter, uh, which for a new designer is a, a lofty, lofty goal. Uh, but again, as I said, I'm a workaholic and I like to try and try and get stuff done. Uh, we, we ended up fulfilling because of a little bit of a snag we fulfilled two days late and I was so sad about that but we were two days behind the promised date uh, that everything got shipped out um, so the couple things that uh, that I learned um, were lessons that I was told but did not take enough to heart um, <laughs> international shipping international shipping is the worst thing ever it is the devil yes it is absolutely the devil uh, <laughs> I yeah, uh, I'm, I'm already groaning, getting ready for another round of that for Satanic Panic because uh, it's already funded at this point. Uh, so I'm like, I know I already have like 30 international backers. I'm just already groaning at that. But um, uh, yeah, that was that was one of the big things learning learning the ins and outs of that. Uh, you know, shipping just in general was something I expected shipping to be a. Um, let me put it a different way. I didn't expect shipping to be a skill you had to learn that had an art to it. 
<laughs> I expected shipping to be, here is my packages. Will you please send them for the lowest cost in some sort of reasonable time? Thank you, please. Here is my credit card. Do your damage. Like that was kind of what I was expecting. Um, when in reality, it is, it is a, a wonderful little art that you have to learn. Uh, so that was, that was one of the big experiences as far as getting, get, getting all that together. Um, and then just a lot of little stuff that's hard to put into words, you know, working, working with printers, working with deadlines, managing a community, you know, managing feedback, managing expectations from people, um, you know, because they have, uh, they have all the right to be expected. Some people kind of put them down, uh, that I hear in com- sort of the, the backroom conversations of going, you know, ah, Kickstarter backers are just so needy, but we have to have them. And I'm going, they gave you money on the hope that something will turn up eventually. I go, I 100% got it. When I first heard Kickstarter come out, I went, that's insane. No one will ever do that. Who would trust someone that they have never met to just give them money and what? hopefully in a year you're going to get a product? That's insane. But people do it, and people do it in really big numbers for the tabletop community. Uh, I think it's because there's just so much darn love and passion in this community uh, and so much engagement with creator and so much creativity. Um, so part of your your thing that you have to deal with as a, as a person that does Kickstarters is you have to be able to manage their expectations, which means here's what's going on. Open, clear communication. Here's what we're doing. Here's the snag we hit. Here's the delay. Hey, it was totally my fault. I didn't send the thing. It's going to be two weeks late. I apologize to you. That's what happened. Um, and to be able to have that open lines of communication work with the community, um, those were the couple big things I would say that I learned from the previous Kickstarter going into Satanic Panic, which is my, my second Kickstarter. Mm-hmm. Um. Yeah, no, the, it, it is. I mean, to be fair, most people when they they talk about the Kickstarter backers, I think it's usually that those problematic, you know, five percent or whatever of backers who, uh, you know, demand, oh, give us exclusives that you know retailers won't get, and give us this, give us that, um, that kind of thing. So it's a minority of Kickstarter backers, but yeah, uh, a few of them can be quite the headache uh, for some projects. Uh, so, but yeah. It, it, it's it's kind of interesting to see how have you have you ch- learned anything different about like marketing your Kickstarter uh, from Reflections because that's always kind of an evolving field you know now like recently the last couple of years that you know uh, social media stretch goals have become popular um, and I noticed you have something like that for Satanic Panic. Uh, uh, yeah, I was, I was just going to say, um, so we're, we're going to get some, all right, we'll, we'll get pretty inside hat here for a moment, I guess. Uh, why not, right? Um, I, I've had a lot of conversations. Um, interestingly enough, I, I actually do a podcast where I interview notable people from from the tabletop community as well. So I've, I've got to sit down and have some lengthy conversations with some very interesting people. And one of the things that, that I seemingly is kind of an unknown right now um, that's getting talked about a lot is our social stretch goal actually better than regular stretch goals. Um, they're wondering if the actual regular stretch goals really are adding that many backers. Now, yes, if you've got a game like 7th C, you know, where your stretch goals are, I'm adding 10 more PDFs to the thing, you're in a whole different story then. But they also had a, a backlog of an entire system to give out. Uh, as much as uh, John Wick, I love him to death. Um, the, uh, he actually wrote a, a setting for Reflections, too. I had John Wick on the book. I was so excited the guy that made L5R work for my thing. But uh, anyway, um, 
So there's a big conversation going on about that right now because social stretch goals are really, really powerful. Um, you know, when I looked at metrics, you know, one of the interesting things I saw for reflections is I did literally zero Facebook marketing for reflections. Um, I was like, Facebook is old dated. It's what my grandfather uses. Um, I guess not my grandfather, if I'm being accurate. It's what my dad uses. Um, you know, it, it's, I don't see the value in it. And at the end of the Kickstarter, I looked at everything and I went, my number three highest uh, level of backers were referrals from Facebook. Mm-hmm. And I went, that is surprising to me because I personally did nothing but just from other people talking about it. Uh, so that was something that I learned of, of we have a, a stronger Facebook presence going into this one. Uh, Twitter has always sort of been been my home as well as, uh, of course, I, I do a lot of podcasts, um, you know, like – and. Certain wonderful people invite me onto their podcast to talk for a little bit too, <laughs> which is very appreciative. Right. Yeah. Um, you know, so the, the, the marketing machine is, uh, to me, it, it's twofold. And step one is, do you have an idea that is interesting and will grab people? You have to have that. If, if, if you don't have that, you're dead in the water. Um, you know, if I'm coming here to tell you, yeah, I've, I've got my new game. Uh, get, get this, Ross. It's called Fantasy, okay? And it's D&D, except it's 3D6 instead of a D20, and I've streamlined the grapple mechanics. You're going <laughs> to love it. Are, are you rushing to my Kickstarter? No, of course yeah, you're not. No. Um, you know, so you, you got to have you got to have your folks, which you already talked about, and then you need to get that in front of as many people as you can. Uh, which is, you know, it, Twitter is a huge community for it. It's Facebook. It's it's G plus, which I'm not as connected as I should be. That'll probably be my lesson for for the next one around. Uh, it, it's podcasting. Podcasting is really really big in the tabletop community. Um, you know, it, you, you kind of look at the numbers and go, oh, it's a podcast with a thousand people. How does that rank up to you know Reddit that has a seventy five thousand you know member community on our RPG? Um, and you go, yeah, but those thousand people that listen to that podcast every week are very engaged with that subject matter. It's a much deeper level of connection. Mm-hmm. Um, and and then from there, of course, you branch out into uh, of course there's the the entire realm of blogs. You've got the Twitch side of it. So there's a whole bunch of avenues. Um, and to me, it, it's a case of you know engage the core audience that you already have if you're lucky enough have already done a Kickstarter. Get to as many media outlets as you possibly can, you know, to show your idea and make sure your idea will grab people. Yeah, uh, yeah, it, it, it's it, it's kind of uh, you know tooting your own horn on every channel that you can find. Yes, um, and, which is very yeah. uncomfortable for a lot of people, myself included. It, it, well, it, it's a different skill set than you know. Yep. Game design is a separate skill for managing a Kickstarter than it is for uh, marketing a Kickstarter. Uh, and I noticed you, you've kind of, and one of the smart ways of doing it is obviously, you know, mitigating this is by breaking up and having a team of people. Um, I noticed like on your page, you do make a, a pretty strong, uh, like it's not just you, Jim, you have Jim Merritt and Emily Reinhardt working on your game. Uh, yeah. I assume they're helping market, uh, this as well on Kickstarter. Uh, I, I end up as sort of the public face. Um, the uh, I, I get to do as as they keep telling me. I get to do the fun thing. They go, you get to just hop on hop on mics and talk. Yeah. And I go, yeah, it's it's, it's fun at times. I, I I won't deny it. But when when your voice is almost done because of a cold and it's like, yeah, got got the third one today. Let's make this happen. Yeah. Uh, sometimes it loses its charm. But then there's great shows like Role Playing Public Radio. They're just yeah. awesome to come on. Uh, but uh, so I, I end up personally doing a lot of the marketing. But you you are 100 percent right. Uh, I do feel you have to have a team uh, trying to do a Kickstarter as entirely a solo event is a, a fool's errand 
Because exactly what you said, there are different skill sets you have to have. You have to have a game designer that can produce an interesting game. You have to have a marketing uh, mentality that you can market that game and get it out there. You have to have a business mentality to make sure you're actually going to be able to make enough money to make this game happen. Mm-hmm. You have to have these different concepts, and then within those, there's microcosms of all the different concepts. Uh, you know, I I end up doing a, a good amount of the the game design and writing on this. Although uh, the others that you mentioned, of course, Jim Merritt uh, and Emily Reinhardt, uh, all three of us sort of co-designed this thing together, uh, and then had our own little you know little tweaks on it of of where where I'm head designer and did most of the writing. Uh, Jim Merritt does uh, does our layout and all of our graphical design, all of our website. Uh, Emily uh, is what what takes the the words that I slap into Microsoft Words and makes it look like a human typed them as opposed to a chimpanzee just flailing on the keyboard um, <laughs> because I oh I'm awful on that and she she hates me so much for it but uh, you know and then then of course there's all the play testing and then there's the workshopping and the brainstorming you know it's game design is such an interesting thing of you know it, it's it, it, it's always hard to say like oh how'd you come up with that mechanic well. Well, me, me, Jim Merritt, and Emily sat around a table for eight hours straight with a pile of note cards and moved things in and out. Like I think it happened somewhere in there. Um, so there's there's so many other little talents that you have to have. You pretty much need a team of people to make this thing happen. Uh, and I've been lucky enough to have a, a really good group of people um, for both the reflections ones that we did now, Satanic Panic. Cool. Uh, so right, uh, yeah. As of right now, uh, the the it ends on Satanic Panic ends on March thirtieth, uh, ten o'clock uh, Central Time. So we got plenty of time. Uh, I'll, I'll post this probably in a week or so because I just put up an interview today. Um, I I'm looking forward to hearing uh, more about it and seeing the final product. Are you planning to be at Gen Con this year? I absolutely. I will be at Origins. I'll be at Gen Con. I'll be at a Catacon, and I will be at Metatopia and PAX Unplugged this year. I'm doing five. Oh, you're doing PAX Unplugged. Uh, yes. I've been kind of oh. interested in that, but um, uh, it'd be interesting to see who else is going to be showing up because, um, yeah. Uh, so I, 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 I'm, I'm on the tape. I'm on the fence of whether I, I want to go or not yet. <laughs> um, but yeah, yeah. I, I'm, I'm on, and I might end up backing out of it just because I've got like November is going to be insane um, because it, it's uh, Metatopia that kicks it off the beginning in New Jersey and then a Catacons, a local convention here in Ohio that uh, the RPG Academy people put on. Uh, that's a lot of fun. Um, so that's the following weekend after Metatopia and then Pax Unplug is the following weekend after that and I'm like three conventions back to back to back weekends will probably kill me. Yeah. So there's still a little bit of debate in my mind on it, but I'm going. I kind of want to see what they're going to do with this, you know, tabletop focused one. Yeah. No. Yeah. Exactly. Um, after going to Pack South myself, I, I if, they they do have the, this tabletop thing, but uh, it's kind of weird. They they kind of have separate standards for board games and card games and for role playing games. So because um, they've been very much focused on D and D. As an as the only right. RPG they really acknowledge exists, so uh, it'll mm, be, right, yeah, uh, at least for PAX South, so uh, and PAX East. Um, but anyway, that's that's an entirely <laughs> separate conversation. So, <laughs> right, right. Um, so yeah, uh, I look forward to seeing uh, Satanic Panic when it comes out. And uh, any final thoughts for our listeners? 
Uh, no, uh, just uh, I, I very much – again, Ross, thank you so much for having me on here. Uh, thank you for uh, let, letting me r- ramble on and on about uh, about Satanic Panic and design work and all this. As as you can tell, I, I like to talk into microphones apparently. Yep. Um, but no, I, mean, I guess the only thing I would – other thing I would say is, again, this is this is on Kickstarter. Um, you know, The only way that we have new games and new designers coming into the hobby is because of things like this, uh, because of crowdfunding campaigns like this. If, if this is a game that you are you're interested in, if it sounds interesting to you, uh, you know, if, if you'd like to support an up and coming game designer, by all means, please go over to Kickstarter slash Satanic Panic, lend your support to the project. I would very much appreciate it. All right. Uh, talk to you guys next time.